Trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about grief, loss and the impact that losing a loved one to suicide can have, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Just Checking In podcast with me, your host, Freddie Cocker. This podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. Today's guest is a rising star in the UK music radio and presenting scene. His name is Joe Walker. Joe joined RWD whilst also working at Startup Station Represent in 2015 and has also hosted his own show on there ever since. He was named by Complex UK in their 14 UK music radio hosts pushing the culture forward for 2021. That's a bit of a mouthful. Joe's also hosted shows on Apple Music One where the likes of Zane Lowe and Charlie Sloth have had mainstay shows. He is also the co-founder of the International Clearance Podcast, a football podcast about British players who make the choice to leave the UK to play abroad and their trials and tribulations on that journey. In this episode, we discuss his journey into the media industry, which is one of the most competitive professions there is, starting his own podcast and going viral when he took part in an impromptu live stream prank on football comedy and culture channel filthy fellas. We also discuss the instability of the industry, the mental health impact that finding work during a pandemic has had on him, grief and the trauma of losing his best friend to suicide three years ago. This is how our conversation went. Joe, welcome to the Just Checking In Pod, mate. Thanks so much for coming on. Let me check in with you. This is Another one of the episodes where I'm, I feel a bit surreal actually chatting to you because I've been watching you for so long, watching you on Filthy Fellas, watching you on, or listening to you on Represent, I should say. So thank you so much for letting me check in with you. At time of recording, the world's in a bit of a crazy place, but how are you and how are you coping, mate? Hi, mate. I'm okay. It hasn't been a straight line. It's been ups and downs for sure. First lockdown. So since the start of first lockdown, I've moved out and got my own place. Out of necessity, really. I was living with my parents and I realised that with the first lockdown actually how little time I spent there when able to, or should I say how much I retreat when I'm in that place. You know, I just cling for my few areas of privacy in the house where I could just relax or unwind. And it just became a bit untenable and stressful, particularly when work started to factor in. And that led to me losing a bit of work. And obviously in the process of moving out, yeah, it has been a bit stressful. So now I'm in this process of trying to pay bills and just trying to pick up new work which is not ideal in a pandemic I guess but you know it's what I've chosen this <laughs> chosen this this way to be so we're going to get into all of that later on in the show mate but your journey is such an interesting one and it's just filled with loads of ups and downs it's such a roller coaster let's just start the show let's start this pod Joe by talking about your journey into radio media and everything in between Take me back, if you can, to the start. When did you first discover your love for radio, talking to yourself, basically, getting behind the mic and giving it a go? Relatively late, to be honest. Certainly by the standards of people I'd consider my peers anyway, in terms of the time when I started. So I was at uni in, this would have been 2011, 2012, I think. 
and someone I knew who was a DJ wanted to start a show on this station called Nerve, which was... So most universities have a, a student radio station, official one, but this one at Bournemouth, the student radio station, you know, courses would use it. it people would train up. There's actual radio production degrees and stuff that people would work on at that official station. But there was also a student union station, which was a bit more kind of cavalier. If anyone wants to go on there, go for it. And he was a DJ. He mixed vinyl, which is obviously quite big and clunky equipment. And this tiny studio that they had, they couldn't even fit his decks in there. So he said he still wanted the show, but he needed someone to just kind of, while he got on with it, just outside the studio with the wires plugged around two meters away. Someone would be running the desk with the levels and just talking on a mic like this. And I said, I just, all right, yeah, I don't mind doing it. And I gave it a go. It definitely wasn't a formative experience, I'd say, in terms of like, oh, yeah, I found this is my style. Or, you know, there were a lot of mistakes. There were things like not having really any official training. We'd be broadcasting for 15 minutes and I haven't put the thing up that so any of it's going out. Like the stuff like that. Very basic. But I enjoyed it. Put it that way. It was only a couple of months, but I enjoyed it. And then years later, by this point, I've left uni, I've gone and worked in a magazine, a music magazine called Rewind. And I could sense, as it has since proven out, that that industry has shrunk. Music media in particular, print was going out of vogue, basically. It just wasn't really, the money wasn't really in it. So I was just kind of considering other ways to express the way I feel about music in a different way. And then that radio experience came back to me and I thought, I quite fancy giving that another go. And at the point... This is what, what's this is like 2015 when I'm thinking this, and at that point I'm getting a lot of music sent early. I'm getting a lot of mu- sent music sent to me anyway because of the magazine stuff and people wanting to know my opinion, wanting to get some interviews or whatever. So I just contacted Represent at Radio, who at the time were going through this massive transition. I didn't know this. I play a lot of the stuff I do down. That's just who I am. But well, this is one of the instances where you know opportunity combines with luck. In this instance, represent they just had this big exodus of presenters and DJs who had gone to what was then Radar Radio. The station manager and, and a lot went and a lot of the people that he trained up went over there with him. Some people like I don't know, Kenny Allstar, Snooty Shy, like people that have gone on to do great things. And they were that station manager's guy. So Represent had a new station manager who was trying to fill up the schedule and I had just like contacted on the website, which if I do that now I'd probably not even get a reply. So I just started working there. I did a little test. He was like, look, there's this weekly slot, one till three in the morning. But because of the nature of community radio, you pre-record that basically. So my work were happy to let me be late every Thursday morning, I think it was. It's kind of halfway to work. So I'd go to Brixton, where Represent is, record a Friday night show first thing Thursday in the morning which was you had to try and match the energy in the studio it's quite difficult it was a learning experience I did that for a little bit and then eventually worked my way up to a live show and then went from you know specialist music to a more daytime show which I'm doing now so at the moment I'm currently doing Monday drive time there the Sunday roast which is a kind of fortnightly culture discussion show with Scully who probably will come up again because we do a lot of stuff together when it comes to live radio itself, mate, what mental tools do you use before you go on air or during it to keep yourself balanced in a healthy frame of mind and maybe stop speaking too fast or something like that? It's a good question because I don't know if I do have those practices. It's funny, right? So because of how late I came into radio relatively, so I was 25 when I started to represent. 
everyone that is out there in the world that has my experience, that has my journey, that I consider people I came up with, they're all 25 now, five years later, five, six years later. So their journeys, I see it like the way they do radio, because often it's what they've always wanted to do. They deliver it really differently. And because I came into it late and it wasn't something that I was like, this is my, all I've ever wanted to do. I kind of approached it differently. And as a result, it has its ups and downs. So some people really like that. The fact I just sound, I just come across really differently. And, you know, I do talk too much sometimes. And especially with the Sunday Roast, the talk show, we can just empty. And we have to remind ourselves it's a radio show. It's not a podcast on the air. You know, you have to interrupt it with some music and, you know, split break it up a bit. But with me, I think some of the most common tools and things that you hear when it comes to radio broadcasting, one I do subscribe to fully and one I'm still working on it. One that I'm still working on, I guess, is you have to picture who you, that you're talking to someone. I sometimes still, although I'm talking to you right now, but there'll be some instances where I'm in a studio on my own, maybe, and I'm just like, I'm talking to myself and I am just kind of pointing and I'm, I'm looking out of a window. And I think a lot of people function really well by they're actually focusing, whether it's a person they know or just like, particularly you're talking to one specific person, who that, whether it's a type of person, whether it's a family member, whether it's a friend, whether it's just someone that doesn't know anything that you're talking about. They're new to all this music or they like it, but they don't know anything about it. You can approach that in different ways and it, that will inform how you start speaking. The one I'm like, I'll always swear by is, I think the key to radio is there's a breakthrough, which is when you forget and the mic is there and you are just talking as if you're alone or you're in a conversation you're not in broadcast mode obviously there's a version of you in conversation knowing where you are that means that you're talking a certain way and broadcast in a professional way but once you stop being daunted by the fact that the record light is on or you're going out live or, or the microphone is in front of you that's when the good stuff starts to happen basically you mentioned there that mistake you made in the university radio show. It's really important on this podcast, Joe, that we normalise making mistakes for our listeners. Is there one apart from that that you feel comfortable sharing? And most importantly, what did you learn from it? Okay, radio mistakes. There'll be lots of little minor ones that end up annoying me more. So because of my journalistic background, if I ask a question and I would like to build up a question like, you know... So, for example, I spoke to Lawrence Coley very recently, the boxer, and... I'll ask him a question, but I'll show off almost like, rather than be like, you know, oh, so what's it like being a boxer? I will mention a load of things that just to, just to let the guests know, I know what I'm talking about here and I've had a look about you. Then I'll ask a bit of more, a question that expands on that so that they are a bit more comfortable quicker and they get to actually open up a bit. Sometimes that opening bit of that question, if I've got a bit of information wrong there, it can really kind of, I think, oh no, I've failed at that task. Or like, um, it might knock me off my senses for a couple of seconds where I'm like, oh no, damn, that's not great. Stuff like that can, can egg on you, but ultimately you can work away around that. The interview is still a conversation. Most of the time the guest just dusts that stuff off unless you've made a huge blunder and you've said something horrendous. But I guess the bigger ones, bigger mistakes I've made on radio would be Apple Music One or Beats One at the time, which is a global station, doing a cover show there, Julie Adenuga at the time, who's no longer there either. I was doing a cover show for her, and I made some sort of mistake because, you know, it was a different studio to what I work in. Weirdly, for all the time I do on Represent, I've pretty much done it alone because of just resources. Whereas Apple, there's two, three people in the room. Sometimes they depend on how their production style is. They're trying to coach you through it or they're, you know, they have to just kind of let you get on with it. And they all have their preferences as to how you're meant to be doing the show, particularly if you're covering for someone because that show will have a particular tone that they're used to. So I felt a bit more like tense than usual. But I remember I slipped up on 
you know, I was just saying a phrase or just a sentence and I tripped up on my words. And sometimes the approach that some people go is like, like if you fumble your words, don't go, oh, you know, I'm with ready, Freddy. I mean, I'm ready. I mean, Freddy. And, and then carrying on. Sometimes you just go, ready, so Freddy. And then you carry on. But I did, I had a kind of moment like that. And then I sort of went to play the song and I went, oh, fuck's sake. And I still had the mic on. You could just, I just saw the look of like everyone go, all the, all the heads turn where obviously they've got it in their headphones. So I, I haven't quite grasped that the mic's still on yet. And I'm like, oh, fuck's sake. And the music starts to play. And then they've all just turned really sharply. And I've realized, oh, ah, okay. I have no idea because some of those stations, depending where you are, there's a little delay sometimes if there's someone in the middle that can kind of rescue and cut that bit out. But I don't think they saw it quick enough or whatever. But um, yeah, stuff like that was very embarrassing. And it does happen. Radio especially. And it's why... I, community radio and stuff is so key and why a lot of people look to that stuff for people in terms of major stations and stuff is because you have to learn through practice and that's where you make your mistakes you have to kind of treat a lot of that stuff as a training ground if you beat yourself up about it too much you just overthink it and a lot of this stuff is about feeling as comfortable and natural as possible so make the mistakes don't worry about it too much try not to make big blunders where possible but yeah like you said you joined apple music's beats one station as well so you held three roles at the same time which can't have been easy it was a completely new station it had tons of money pumped into it did you have any imposter syndrome sort of bumping into maybe Zane Lowe or Charlie Sloth in the corridor and what did you learn about yourself there yes imposter syndrome I guess yeah for the reasons that I've mentioned before the idea that you know I can't maybe I was still trying to convince myself once I got offered something at Apple Music it was like okay I guess I'm a presenter now this is what is paying all my bills this is the highest pay thing I'm doing at the time. I'm still working at the magazine at that time. I'm still doing represent at the time. And th- I guess that plays into it as well. So represent is a voluntary thing. It's quite a really reputable community station, but everyone on there is a volunteer. It's just something we all want to do. But normally you graduate from there to go on to a place such as this. But the show I was doing was like a playlist show. So I didn't have my own guests. I wasn't kind of a face on any websites and I didn't pick any of the music. So it was a lot more of like a, voiceover kind of thing very short links rather than the ones that you would get if you listen to a breakfast show for example and so as a result they would kind of encourage me to kind of keep doing stuff that represent you know until an opportunity comes where you can do a show like this or play your you can exhibit those sort of tastes and skills on this stage as time goes longer that I'm not doing that that imposter syndrome might linger possibly the concern more was that I was just I was just exhausted back then I was because I was still I was gassed to be there so I think the ambition and the excitement and the kind of keen to get involved and work at that moment in time, I probably overrided the imposter syndrome. I was just quite happy to be like, you know, well, if that's not the case, someone here believes that I'm good enough to be here. So cool. Let's just work on that and, and work on getting better in the same way that I did at Represent. I can just keep on improving, learning new disciplines from some really skilled people. In terms of like meeting other DJs, I didn't have that so much. Zane Lowe's based out in LA, but I did meet him a couple, he came over a couple of times and that was okay. Like we just had a nice conversation, but in terms of like the other presenters there that I would encounter all the time, Julie was the main one and I knew Julie before anyway. I interned at a company when I was very young that was owned by like her best friend. So we weren't close before that, but we knew each other. So I never had that kind of like, oh my God, daunting moments there quite like that luckily or maybe I needed that who knows before we move on to international clearance has there been a moment during your media radio journey so far where you felt accepted or maybe it's been a great piece of feedback from a peer you admire a comment from a listener have you had that light bulb moment or is it not arrived yet do you think 
So when I was at Represent, right, when I started, right, you have there's two studios at Represent. There's the live studio and then there's a pre-rec studio at the time. Basically now, at the time of recording, the second studio is now as good as the live studio. They're basically interchangeable. But before it was just the second room was like a box room. You couldn't really fit two people in there. It was just very much an emergency room to record. But that was where I was pre-recording for that Friday night, Saturday morning show. As I got into live, particularly for what I was doing at the time, which was it was a roundup show of grime music. Grime music, if you know, it's a bit like drum and bass or um, jungle show in that most people that want to talk about that music or want to play that music are DJs and they will use that as an opportunity to mix and DJ and they're championing all this music but also championing themselves as a DJ which kind of leads them on to getting interested to play clubs and festivals and all that stuff and their career in that way. With myself, because I'd come into it, I, I liked lots of music, but at the time I was the grime specialist on Rewind and I had a lot of, uh, at the magazine and got a lot of feed, good feedback on that. People were really, I, I did feel part of that and that side of things was really cool. But what it meant was that when I went to radio, I was just kind of presenting it as if I was a normal daytime radio person with specialist music, which is actually relatively unusual, but, but especially with grime, where naturally mix shows are king. If you are to talk about, Freddie, if you're talking about, right, if someone says, what's the, what are the greatest albums in grime of all time? Depending on who you are, some people kind of will immediately push back and go, that's not really how that music works. So there are people who have like charts of like the top 10 grime sets, radio sets, because that's actually grime in its purest form as a DJ, an MC, maybe plural, just blending for that hour and working amongst each other and just kind of having an organic relationship and creating some magic there. And so... As someone that is presenting grime on the radio, I know in the back of my mind at the time, oh, I need to, I've got to have I've got to have a set at some point on the show. Not the whole show, maybe the last half hour, 45 minutes. Not being able to DJ at the time. I remember I bought some equipment, was like, I'll get to it when I've got time. I didn't have much time at the time. And then I had a couple of guest sets and what ended up happening was like, a guest I wanted to have on would come. They'd have to source their own DJ or they would bring people that I wasn't necessarily had any interest in like hearing about sometimes i'd have to get another represent dj to do it for me on the show and i'd think like well you can just do that on your show if i'm gonna get represent djs to you know they can just do that on their show this isn't i felt like i was giving away a big chunk of my show to other people and initially i thought the quicker i can get to dj myself i can take over that whole end of my show and really curate who i want on and make some stuff that i would be excited to hear in between that while that's happening I think I had, it might have been P-Money. He just popped in for a couple of minutes and I had a chat with him instead. I knew him already and because of my interviews at Rewind, I interviewed in a very particular way, I guess. It's a slightly different style to radio interviews, I guess. Particularly as we've touched on already, you know, there's a radio style sometimes that is you know, very bubbly and da 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 And you get a very limited format of interview like that. But where I was just kind of... I'm someone that just happens to be on the radio right now and I'm gonna talk, we're going to talk as if we normally are. I had a different style of interview and in answer to your question, the long answer to the coming back to your question is that people picked up on that. People in Grime picked up on that and were like, oh, right, so if I make an album for nine months and then my only promo is doing a radio set and interrupting it in the middle and going oh, my album's out tonight by the way they don't get to expand on it anywhere really like unless they get a an odd magazine interview so people started to say like i want to come to you when my project is out or whatever or my single whatever i get to be interviewed 
Like all the other stuff in grime is covered on every other show, but there's actually nowhere to just sit down and let's talk about this thing that I've been working on for a long time or songs that really mean a lot to me because that stuff isn't really covered elsewhere. So I kind of took pride in... Once I realised that people were seeing... That gave me a little niche. I kind of just ditched the sets in the end. And I just stopped having them and I said, okay, why am I fighting to be like every other show in the scene when I can just be this weird unicorn that is like not like everyone else and people have to feel like they have to come here to have that conversation and talk about things in a particular way and in the end ultimately it was those kind of interviews and that stuff I'd put them on SoundCloud and things like that I think people at Apple were like oh we like that about you we clearly see you have this access and you're doing things differently in a world that we see as cool but we don't have access to so yeah in the end that is what helped me progress a lot quicker was seeing things differently like that. Let's move on to your newest baby, which is your venture into the podcast world. And given how oversaturated much of the football media world is, which is ironic because it's not actually that big, the football media world as well. It's a topic which isn't really discussed much, which is the experience of British football players playing over abroad. Tell me why you wanted to cover that niche topic in particular. Was having that unique concept important to you? It was probably the most important. So... Being in the broadcasting world, bubble, whatever, whether it's music or sports, you're very aware of people you consider your peers or, or, or you know, other people in, in the world, that little creative bubble, and what they're up to and what works and what doesn't. So my co-host on the podcast is Scully. We've done a talk show on Represent for about three, four, well, about four or five years now. We were put together because we were both writers at the time and they was like, okay, you guys could do a really cool Sunday show where you talk a bit, a bit more nuanced about things. And ultimately, as, as I think I touched on earlier, it kind of sounds like, at the beginning certainly, it just sounded like a podcast on the air, which we've moved away from now. But we were aware even then, we were saying, let's not put this up as a podcast because there's loads of people talking about this already who are very good at it. Let's see if we're any good at that before we consider things like that. And again, I'm someone that talks myself out of a lot of doing a lot of ideas if I think someone else out there is doing it better and whatnot. And as you say, it's not that big in a world in the grand scheme of things, but it can be, it still be quite concentrated in terms of a lot of people talking about the same stuff. So as much as I've loved football for my whole life, probably longer than music, I've always like, I don't want to get into that stuff unless there's a rock solid concept that I just know no one's touching. And the thing about British players going abroad is that relatively speaking, compared to the rest of the world, it's because of the popularity of the English league, I think certainly in the last 20 years, they just don't leave the country. The money's here. There's a lot of clubs here. And it's strange because we have all the opportunity to go abroad because English is spoken everywhere and stuff. It's actually easier for us than it is in other countries, I suppose. But in the back of my mind, when I was thinking about it, there were always these spells, like really weird, like, oh my gosh, that person played in like, Peter Crouch played in Iceland when he was 18. Like, what's that about? Okay, like... um. Grant Holt went to Indonesia for a little bit. Oh, like Akin Fenwa played in Lithuania. Like, what? I want to know all about that. And so just from that kind of concept, I just said, all right, that is something I'm happy to go forward and just start something up. Ask Ali if he wanted to be on board. He was like, yeah, 100%. And yeah, we just found like, yes, th those conversations have been had elsewhere in other podcasts, but we were able to narrow down on these very particular moments in people's careers. I think when an ex-footballer or current footballer goes on to some of these shows, they will have to cover their whole career on there. So you get a quite condensed version. If there's some interesting stuff, you might get an anecdote from that time. But that's the beginning and end of it. Whereas we're kind of narrowing the focus on a, literally like a year or two in this person's whole career. 
and we'll get a lot more time on that and you, yeah we're getting a lot really interesting insights on why people do this what keeps people out there and how different it can be if you listen you'll see i i regurgitate a lot of the football trivia and stuff and i'm focusing on that kind of stuff and how it all worked out whereas scully plays it on a more cultural angle which is like you know what's it like for a 20 year old from labrick grove to move to Istanbul like what, what 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 is that like and how do you cope you know race has come up a lot in some of our conversations when like well for example yeah Les Ferdinand going to Turkey or Chris Dixon was someone we interviewed ex-Charlton player who he was playing for a Cypriot team and they went to Serbia for a Champions League qualifier and received torrents of racist abuse even him going he played in China for a bit the same player and he said kind of because they just don't see black people they're just taking photos of you in the street and everyone's going to react to that differently some people just be really bemused some people are going to be scared intimidated some people are going to be like okay remove myself from a situation this is because they don't see them they only see black people on tv all that stuff comes into it too and we don't want to brush over that so we cover quite we end up getting quite a lot of interesting stuff out of people in these experiences and what it's like whenever i think of brits well football brits playing abroad i always unfortunately think of that Ian Rush quite remarking on his one season playing for Juventus when he said it was like living in a foreign country. It's often trotted out. Going from radio to podcast, Joe, I imagine is a natural step for many, especially in the media world. But for you, did it take you out of your comfort zone in any way or help you develop sort of new technical or social skills as an interview that you can use in radio or outside of it too? I suppose on the radio side, uh, sorry, on the interview side, not as much because it allowed me to get back into my journalistic bag again so I'm way more comfortable with the long form interviews what did change I suppose was weirdly it's hard to explain sometimes being live is actually way more comfortable for a lot of people than would be suggested you know the idea is that I'm really comfortable doing a pre-record because there's no pressure if I make a mistake I can start again and live you know oh my gosh I collapse live what am I gonna do like oh no I'll just die on my ass and what actually happens is that you make a mistake live you just kind of power through it and you kind of you trip up on your words you just carry on going and there's no real time to really think about it and dwell on it you just keep it moving and you on to the next thing whereas if you make a mistake even if it's relatively minor one on a pre-record sometimes your brain will just go okay stop I'll I tell you what let's just start that again and if you're not careful you'll find yourself re-recording the same thing multiple times and they ultimately if you actually remove yourself from it they all kind of sound the same and you know you've over you're overthinking it and then it's not not coming natural anymore every now and then that happens with me if i'm pre-recording a radio show at home if i haven't nailed the intro i'll just go okay i might as well start again then because it's only like 30 seconds so i don't have to lose all that bit at the start or whatever so having the podcast the challenge has been particularly because we have been pre-recording it and doing it remotely because of obvious obvious reasons trying to power through that thought of like oh i've I've tripped up here and there are still ways of getting around that you can just stop for a couple of seconds start again and cut those bits out but you don't want to have to do that so the challenge has been having a lot cleaner runs even though it's pre-recorded doing it as live but trying to just sharpen it because you don't want to have to edit so much on the back end, as I'm sure you can attest, Freddie. And stuff like that is the thing. I think having someone else on the pod has probably helped that as well. Because bouncing off someone will always be better. It's always a lot easier than having to imagine someone's there or you're talking to someone. Or just someone that can 
you know, in a natural conversation, if you sense someone is stumbling, you kind of pick up on that in a conversation anyway and take over. It's it's almost like a an instinct, a, a thing you don't realise you're doing. So, yeah, that I would say is more a challenge of the, the move from radio to podcasting. I want to talk quickly about the Filthy Fellas prank, which I mentioned in the intro. Now, because of your work at Rewind, you're good friends with its director, Tigo Sigo, who runs Filthy Fellas, which has really taken off in the last couple of years, and rightly so. You were invited onto a few lockdown live streams during the pandemic on Twitch. Now, one in particular, thanks to some quick thinking by you, got a pretty big viral moment, which was a prank on one of Filthy Fellas' characters and No Behaviour Podcast's Loons. Can you give the context about the prank? It's a bit niche, but can you give the context about the prank for the listeners, what went down? And going viral isn't always a positive thing, as we found out with the four Brummy lads. But what was it like for you that moment? It was okay. It was okay. So, yeah, through working at Rewind, which has always filmed Filthy Fellas, and it meant that even though I'm not particularly part of the team there, it's really picked up since lockdown, but they've been going three or four years, I think maybe longer now and I've been there since inception and what it would mean was that they would come let's say it was a Monday night they'd all come in to record on a Monday evening unlike the new current format where they're all sat together or all on a a Twitch live or something they would go in two at a time and what you now see as the show was actually what used to happen just outside the studio they were trying to record everyone is waiting for their turn to go into the studio and they're just arguing and so I'm sat there just you know in the evening because I was getting on with some work that I needed to be done I'm still in there and I'm having to kind of double up as a person that's asking them to like can you keep it down because you know you're affecting the, the studio and stuff and in the end I think because at that time the reason why they didn't just make that the show was just because of logistical reasons and equipment and stuff whereas lockdown it was kind of like a force of change of like actually we did these twitches and, and live broadcasts remotely these like hangouts or whatever because that was all we could do in lockdown and that ended up becoming really funny and it actually showed why someone like a Tigo wanted to make it with Poet in the first place because you could see the magic and the chemistry of all these people but yeah I started to go on just because every now and then obviously I know them all or most of them anyway so for example I didn't know Luz which we'll get on to I know like the core that have been there for a long time up to about Geordie's arrival so I'd be in the comments sometimes and they go on a live or whatever and every now and then if it was if it was just two of them on there and they were kind of waiting on someone to else to arrive into the twi- the chat and all that. So they would just kind of send me a link and go, come on, get involved. And I know I get the vibe. I'm a fan of it and I know them. So I just get in on the, the nonsense. You know, I think everyone on there, they're all entertaining people anyway and whatever, but they know what stuff the crowd will enjoy as well. And that's what it's got to be about. Like, So in that instant, that was only like the t- second or third one I did, I remember. It was around December and... J5's like a Grammy nominee, I think, if he's done something. Uh, I don't know if he worked on that Burner album, but worked on all the J Huss album that's Brit nominated and all that stuff. Amazing guy, amazing producer. Margs, who is a rapper, but is also Loon's co-host on No Behaviour, had said something about NSG or J5 or that kind of sound on a podcast or on something. Basically wasn't a fan of it, but had said it in a particular way that ruffled a few feathers. And ultimately, yeah, people got sensitive about it and Loon's being his mate and his co-host was like, don't talk spicy on the internet. Who wants a route? And I'll, all right, if you want to cut, if you want, if we want to cuss each other's style of music or who's popular or whatever, okay, I don't really care about the industry, so I'm just going to steamroll all of you online. And yeah, there was like a real like talking about if I see you, this is going to happen. Da, da, da. So I'm on a Filthy Fellas live with Tigo, Savage Dan, Geordie, and Specs. Specs knows 
those guys a bit more, I believe. Specs's cousin is a rapper called Joe Black, who's really well respected in that particular era and scene, and Margs would know really well. So I think Marg, I can see in the live, Specs is on the phone to somebody, and I think he's got his mic off. But he turns it back on and he says, it's clearly Loon's on the phone. And he said, oh yeah, no, I tell you, you got to come here, come here right now. J5's in the, he's here, he's here, he's in the live. Come and talk to him, like, let's build some bridges. And, you know, hangs up the phone and everyone's laughing because it's like he's going to come here and be really annoyed and disappointed. And I just thought, actually, you know what? He doesn't know who I am. So why don't I pretend to be J5? So I turn off my camera and I change my name in the corner of the, the Twitch to J5. And as, if you can find a clip online, Loons comes in, all guns blazing, talking about, you know, <laughs> what was the line? Yeah, I'm going to have to tell my daughter visits again. I'm not afraid to go back to jail. I'm going to tell her I might have to go work on an oil rig again. Daddy's going to go work on an oil rig for a few years. And yeah, it was it was hilarious. I ruined it. So I, we managed to keep it going for like 30 seconds, maybe like, and that, which is a long time considering like, and we'll try not to laugh. If you watch it again, when he's reacting, they're all kind of stroking their faces and their cheeks where they're trying not to, they're trying to hide their smiles twitching. And then I tried to do a voice. Clearly, I did a very bad J5 impression. I don't know what he sounds like. And it just shattered the illusion. And then, But he looked, he was very embarrassed, very funny. In terms of going viral like that, you know, it was funny. And it, I let it roll out. And it, it was just, because it, it was good banter. And ultimately, because there was a slight part of me that was like, well, maybe because they all did see that, the people that he, Loons wasn't getting on with. But I thought, are they going to see that as like me? Consider what else I do. Is that really unprofessional that like in their side, am I going to have trouble getting access to them as an interview or their music or whatever? Are they going to be pissy with me? But that was really, that was overthinking it. And I think they just saw it for what it was. So I never had any, nothing, no grief came off the back of it. I saw Loons a few months later, a couple months later, and he didn't even recognize me. <laughs> so like, yeah. But once he did, once I, once I kind of told you who he was, he was like chasing me around the room a bit. But um yeah, look, I, I knew it was just, it's all about just making people laugh, man. That's what it's all about, especially the lockdowns. It's fucking miserable, man, let's be honest. So, like, anything that's lighthearted or just laughing with people, yeah, I was all in. I want to talk about COVID now and the impact that COVID's had on your career, Joe, because it's not something talked about much in the industry, I think, despite the fact that so many people within it have lost work and are being affected by it. You told me you spent 2019 on another planet, when it came to your mental health and how work was affecting it. What did you mean by that? 2019 being on another planet was... So, I'll try and be quick as I can. We started at Beats 1, Apple Music 1, right at the end of 2017. And so, from there till literally the end of 2018, on Apple two or three times a week, sometimes more, I'm doing two represent shows and I'm working at Rewind. Rewind have let me... I've been very relaxed. They're letting me come and go as I please, as long as I kind of do the work. And because I felt loyal to them, I didn't want to take the piss. I'd do some radio work and come in at like 2 p.m. It's like, well, I'm not going to leave at five or six. That's out of order. So I would stay till the late evening. So combine that. So I'm, I'm working like 12, 13 hour, hours, sort of more than several times a week and at least one day on a weekend. I essentially would have one Saturday free every two weeks, which I would then go to a football. So I was busy and I was tired and because particularly in that world you're saying yes to everything because you know it's nice to get those opportunities coming to you for the first time and, and you're just your energy and ambition is what is taking you through it you see the means to an end and whatnot but then life started to pass me by it was too much of a whirlwind basically I wasn't having a life yeah I was just knackered basically and I kind of knew it but was like okay I'll get through this uh, you know 
maybe I'll get a show, another show at Apple when I can drop out, represent and stuff. Head down, just trying to get on with it, not dealing with that. And what it led to was just like, I remember trying to get in a relationship at that time and I just wasn't giving that person any attention. It was just a bad idea. And then also like family and friends. 2018, my grandmother dies, who was ill for a little bit, but like not a long time. I'm talking like six months. And I didn't really see any of that decline, really. I was never visiting her in hospital. I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm still at work trying to, you know. And then about two, three months after that, my oldest friend committed suicide. And it's not the reason why, but how you react as a human at the time. All my last messages from him on WhatsApp were like him going like, what are you up to? What are you up to? Let's do something tonight. Like, what are you doing? And it's just months of me going, oh, I'm, oh, I can't, I'm busy. I'm working. I'm da, da, da. Just kind of holding him off until like, hopefully I can get something done. And the combination of those, I was just like, flawed. We would floor you anyway. But I was just like, what am I doing? What is this all for? Like, life is passing me by at the moment. So I left Rewind. It was the easiest thing to do at the, at the time. I was like, okay, let me let go of that. And that was the end of 2018. And I figured, in my mind, I was like, oh, it's cool. 2019, I'll just recover and, you know, get my time and space back. And I have those extra hours to just be a bit more present. What I should have done was use those extra hours to go to counsel grief counselling or therapy or whatever. And I didn't, and what, yeah, it just meant that I was just, I was recovering from that, those, those traumas, that grief. I was even less present than I was before. It literally got to a point where people were putting their arm around me at work, going like, do you feel all right? That happened multiple times. I was just kind of like, okay, yeah, I, I'm here. And that's why I say it was like I was on another planet, because I was just this, walking around and that stuff, but I was not helping myself at all, and I was not myself at all, certainly pre all that stuff, so... Yeah, and that was pre-COVID. So I was still like, I was still kind of at the other side of that when COVID comes in. We're going to talk about all of that a bit later on in the pod, Joe. But just on the industry itself, before we move on, it's a pretty unstable place at the best of times. Do you think in some ways the pandemic will make employers reset maybe their mindsets about the type of work they offer to creatives and people in the industry so they feel more financially secure and therefore hopefully perhaps a bit more mentally at ease or or do you think things will stay the same i wouldn't put my money on it changing i think the motives that you mentioned there as to what people would consider more and change i think the people in charge of those decisions would still be more focused on how their business practices change in terms of their benefit if they've survived for example a lot of people a lot of presenters and djs do really well out of brand partnerships and and endorsements and all that and ads and a lot of that stuff if the agency is in charge of finding people for brands to do that, a lot of them have gone to the wall and uh, or, or just are really struggling themselves. So what will you'll find out end up happening is not necessarily selfish reasons, but they're just trying to stay afloat. And, and if that means keeping things as normal, I don't think they'll look beyond that in terms of changing how their practices work. Yeah, it's quite an unstable industry in that way. It's a lot more freelancey. I've been very lucky in that up to basically the last year, I've managed to get away of being just in a freelance world on salaries so rewind i was a staff full-time staff writer and the beats one money was enough to live on and it was like a salary essentially if not full-time hours whereas i think a lot of people certainly by the time they get to my age have had years of doing little picket pockets and you know finding making money stretch and doing lots of little jobs scully i've mentioned before my co-host on the podcast he is someone that has many multiple income streams every month just because that was the nature of the beast and when you're 21 it's easier to just accept that and get on with it than it is maybe at 29 30 
because it's like a, you know you've got used to a way of it being done but that's just the way it is i think that one I, I can't see that change anytime soon before we move on to your personal mental health and life journey joe doing this radio and media journey for the time you have what has it taught you about yourself do you think um what has it taught me about myself i suppose it's an example i can look back to if i'm feeling quite low or like not confident which can be a lot particularly in the last year i can look to my radio journey as an example of like i just said i wanted to do that and so i went and did it and what anyone thought of it didn't matter what anyone else's input wasn't really important it was just something completely different to what i was doing i wanted to do it so i gave it a go i liked it and i kept doing it and it led to this beautiful stuff and sometimes you know i might be in a mood now where if i have an idea to do something it seems so daunting to change up and do something new whether that's a podcast whether that's a video youtube series whether that's a tiktok account all of it can just seem like that's not something i do that's for other people and sometimes that's true sometimes it's just actually like no 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 you can do something really good on there just don't be afraid of trying something new you've done it before i should look on radio back again as that more often which is like this is a successful venture that i created out from nothing really like i had some help along the way but the decision to just start it came from Nothing but just curiosity and enthusiasm, which should be at the heart of it. Something, everything everyone does, really. We've talked all about Joe Walker, the radio podcast host, prankster. Let's go a bit deeper and talk about your own journey in a bit more detail, Joe. So firstly, I ask all my special guests this question. Why don't you walk me through early life in South London, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Joe we meet here? Young version of me, yeah, born in Fortin Heath, which is in Croydon, moved to kind of where I still am now in primary school. So I'm primary school in South Norwood, little place, and then moved to where I am now, a place called like Annalee, Beckenham, Crystal Palace, Penjeria. It's like Bromley, Croydon, borders, basically, South East London. Joe at that age, because I went to a very small primary school, literally like a class per year, 30 kids. So the whole school was like 200 kids. Everyone knows everybody. And in theory, everyone's a big cheese. It's not very difficult to be a face at a primary school. When you're, not that people at primary school consider themselves as a face, a big name or a big name in the playground. But just like everyone, knows, yeah, everyone knows everyone. I would, because, yeah, we look back, I probably thought, yeah, I'm a bit of a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a chap. Because of, as I said, being on a border of two boroughs, my primary school is in Croydon and I've moved to Bromley. So I could get to the primary school, but when it came to secondary school, the process was a little more complicated. And in the end, the secondary school I went to, I was the only kid from my primary school there. And suddenly you're going from 200 kids in the whole school to 200, 250 in a whole year. So I've walked in there with, but I'm quite tall now, but I was just a, a little kid, little Mowgli, like built like Mowgli as well. So walking into a school like that, which was one of the worst in the borough, a school hard, a hard, all boys school. Particularly when I first joined, when I first joined, there were still kids there who were like refugees from like civil wars in other countries and stuff. And you could see they'd like war scars on their faces and stuff like that. Like these people had seen stuff. So when you plant people like that into a school environment, it's just nonsense. And so there's a lot of trauma that they're not dealing with because it's like, you know, years before anyone's really dealing with that properly. It's just like a lot of torment in a playground. And I'm still walking like I'm cock of the walk, like big cheese. I'm just walking in head first into trouble all the time and grief and fights and stuff. Fights I'm definitely not winning, by the way. And I'm thinking I'm just, I've got a sharp tongue. I can talk my way out of it. It just wasn't happening at all. So 
the first couple of years of secondary school are just me shrinking a little bit more where I'm becoming less of that person as I'm realizing, ah, oh, Joe, maybe, maybe shut the fuck up. <laughs> like, maybe this isn't this person you need to be. And I remember around like year, probably the whole of year nine, early year 10, I was quite shy by the end of that, where I just kind of was the change of how the school environment was and where I fit in that as someone in a boys school. If you, you got to either play football really well, or you got to be good at a fight. I played football. I was enthusiastic. I wasn't, I've never been good enough at it, not to be in a school team. And I could definitely couldn't fight. So, and I didn't have my core of primary school kids that I've known the whole time. I was just trying to start anew, which I did obviously in the end, but like, it just meant I was, I just retreated a lot. And weirdly that informed a lot of stuff that has helped me now. So I just became this kid that was playing a lot of football manager and a lot of LimeWire at the time. I don't know if you remember LimeWire. So I inhaled so much music that way and learned so much music that way, which then helped me become the music writer I was. And this kind of on radio, depending on some people, I have this kind of ability to recall so much about music. So that stuff was good, but it also meant just socially, I was trying to just keep away, keep everybody happy, which is probably why my interview style is like it is. Yeah, I was maybe always putting other people first in the end. I was just trying to like, I felt like an inconvenience sometimes. I got better at that, but yeah, I was a very stressed kid around that time very insecure your journey has so many similarities mine in that i went to a very very rough mix school in essex in romford which romford in the early noughties was just a fucking different place and i spoke to a previous guest called will costello about the threat of violence a lot of boys face in school and he faced in school i faced that on a daily basis basically with the rise of social media and young male egos being goaded into violence now sometimes extreme violence that we're seeing in our city joe is that a fear you felt in school and how big a factor do you think it is on young men's mental health during that period it's something i worry about now the fact that because ultimately you're right freddie it is the it's the provocation on social media on snaps and and all that stuff of being like if someone got caught and beaten up 10 15 years ago there were some videos on phones but you could easily prove and say, that's not me. That's just a load of pixels. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's a free GP, they would call it, that file. And it was just like, you couldn't barely hear what's going on. Whereas now it's there in, I mean, 4K, 100 billion megapixel cameras. And it just leads to people getting angry in reaction because they feel like, oh my God, the whole world's watching. And at that age, that's all you care about, isn't it? It's like, you can't see the future. You just worry about today and now. Everything you're doing is the most important thing in the world. I don't know, if you're someone that's getting bullied at that time, it's hard to tell that person, you know, you're never going to see these people again after three, four years. People don't think about it. You're thinking about right now and it's horrible. And the fact I've got to go in every day and deal with this. So violence at school was very real. But yeah, even when it happened, I didn't feel that kind of retribution. But there was horrible stuff that I feel like, I don't think the instances of when violence occurred was any better than it is now. My school, for example, <laughs> they had these doors all the way around the front. So obviously I had the main entrance, but there was like three or four doors that you could get into the school via the front basically and other people if they had a row with someone if whether they were from someone's little brother or older brothers or they come from another school they would just turn up into our school with baseball bats and weapons and stuff and just let themselves in and have grief so what ended up happening the school would like lock all these other doors which is obviously a fire hazard so they'd only get unlocked when the inspectors would come and then they'd relock them again like it was just really strange but i saw stuff like I saw a supplier teacher throw a kid through a temporary classroom wall. I saw someone get stabbed in the temple with a fountain pen. 
there was a day where there was a, a phantom Stanley knife stabber where people were getting stabbed in the back of their knees, that like weird bit of skin in the back of your knees. And no one knew who it was, but they just knew between lessons, someone was jabbing people in the back of their knees. And so can you imagine when word gets around that that's happening, there was just this chaotic couple of days where people were sprinting from lesson to lesson because or staying inside at lunch because they didn't want to get stabbed in the back of the legs and stuff like that all the time and the torment as well so at the time year seven and year eight had their own playground it was a cage but they had their own playground essentially you could go anywhere you wanted but that one was just for them and there was a bigger kind of cage for year nines tens and elevens with tennis courts on or whatever what would happen was be like year nines or year eight sometimes even would lock the or would basically shut that cage door behind them of the year seven and year eights and it was basically whenever the year sevens would start, they would shut that gate behind them and just start weighing in all the year sevens, basically like welcome. That you're trapped in this cage and we're going to beat the shit out of you. We might take your money, whatever. And so you had this kind of like hunger games of people climbing, climbing fences like fucking Vega in Street Fighter to get out and just avoid getting beat the shit out of every day. And so, yeah... When you start like a school like that, especially when you don't know anyone, you try to walk around in a particular way because running for your life, there's a little thrill to it, I guess. I don't know if that's a natural instinct or whatever, but you'd rather not happen. You'd rather just be able to get on with your work or whatever. Like, it was a fucking nightmare. Yeah, I'm, I've just got so many commonalities with that. I mean, I remember when muck up day we used to call it happened in my school and i remember walking home i was in year nine and the year 11s had basically got paintball guns and gone out the back of our school and started gunning people down head teacher got punched in the face chucked in a bush like all these sort of horror stories that no one in well i guess i was in essex but like london schools inner city schools as well you you, you talk to people and you're like i can't tell these stories to other people they just won't get it when i went to uni it was so fascinating i think where i was a lot of people maybe didn't go to those type of schools or whatever i didn't so there would be these kind of chats and be like, oh, my school was so bad. This one guy I told a teacher to fuck off once. And I was like, okay. And I, I was like, it got to a point where when I'd be telling these stories, it sounded like I was making them up to show off or something. I was like, no, this stuff really happened. We'd have, you know, race wars outside the school. You know, a van of Albanians would turn up with swords and knives, like to attack school kids. Like this was stuff that happened and it wasn't recorded. If it was recorded, oh my gosh, like, We'd be all over the news. But it just, yeah, it was very, it's very different. And some people have been very lucky and been very sheltered to, were able to have their educational experience without any of that stuff. Yeah, it's a really sad thing where I say I survived school rather than I thrived in it, basically, in secondary school. And, and the state school system shouldn't be like that. But moving on to A-levels. I moved to a sixth form, an all-boys sixth form in another place in Essex, but in a nicer place of Essex. And I say to anyone that A-levels was the most stressful period of my life, more stressful than GCSEs, more stressful than my uni degree. I believe that was the case for you as well, Joe. And unfortunately, your mental health began to physically affect you as well as mentally, obviously. If you could, just tell the listeners about that and that period of your life. Yeah, it's something I kind of didn't really realise until afterwards when I really kind of had a look back. That secondary school, I stayed there, did my GCSEs there. And I started my A-levels there and I'll be honest, I cruised my GCSEs, you know, and I did it without having to work too hard for it. And what it meant was that I was complacent for my A-levels and thought I could do the same. But, you know, I'm a smart guy. I'm certainly one of the smartest in this school, which I was. It's fine. I'll be fine. And then I wasn't. There were some courses where I did really well, like English. But math, I was as good at maths as I was at English. And I completely bombed maths, A-level maths. And 
a couple of other subjects as well and I was like whoa this is not meant to happen to people like me you know I was, despite being shy about all other things I was always confident about my ability as an ac- academically and I was like wow I'm too comfortable here I need to get the hell out of here so I moved to a secondary school uh, sorry a sixth form in Chislehurst which is like beyond Bromley towards Kent really nice place I went there and it was a instead I've gone from an all boys school to a girls school with a mixed sixth form which really actually manifests about 10 15 boys tops but it was a really smart school really prided itself on academic stuff and i knew a couple people there but i was like i won't get away with cruising here i'll just get on with it but the stress at the time as it started to because basically i remember i got there and they said to me look we don't the boring stuff but they're like we don't do the same exam boards for these subjects as your other sixth form did and so the way at a universal ucas points and stuff the way that works you won't be able to resit any of your AS stuff. You'll have to just write off those points and you can't build on those if you want to do it in two years. You can either do that and limit what you can achieve or you can just start all over again. And I was like, no, I don't want to lose a year. Like, oh God forbid. So I tried to just do one year at this new sixth form. And as a result, yeah, it limited my uni options. It kind of didn't really work out either because I was just constantly playing catch up. And the stress it built on me, it kind of physically manifested as like, sores on my head I wouldn't quite go as far as saying alopecia like, I wasn't just losing like huge spots on my head but I would come up in all these sores and scabs and scars and like I had really short hair at the time and I just have all these little holes in my head which is why I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to call it alopecia because I'm, I'm aware of the manifests in a very particular way but this was just like scar tissue emerging all over my head and stuff which uh, obviously being an insecure teenager didn't really help either with like body confidence or anything like that so I just remember that looking back now being like a really, really torturous period. And in the end, yeah, I did have to do another year there in the end, which I guess I was embarrassed about. It's not a big deal now and I look back a bit, but you know, all my friends were going off and I was having to stand back another year and which probably extended that stuff for a little bit. But yeah, as you said, it's, I think it can be underestimated how unpleasant A-levels is. The sudden spike in urgency, in difficulty of the work, and how important it suddenly is you know GCSEs can be brushed off sometimes as like oh yeah it's just something don't worry about it you know it's not the end of the world if you don't get them but a levels you're like it has to have to achieve this to build onto something else or go to the place i want to it's imperative that i do that and that's a lot of stress for people to work under when you had to retake that year i know loads of people who had to retake years and the stigma they felt was very much internalized it wasn't like they didn't feel the stigma from having to go into the the younger year group basically what got you through that period do you think and how proud of yourself were you when you finally achieved the grades you did was it a relief more than anything it was a relief in the end I think because I knew of that extra year that I would get what I needed to it was just relief in the end but what I did enjoy I compared certainly compared to the, that first year where it was just all very stressful I, I told myself do you know what? I'm gonna go there I'm just gonna keep my head down and get on with the work and just shut out everybody else, shut out all the parties and stuff. Because obviously everyone's turned it, everyone has their teams and stuff. And, you, you know, that's a lot of fun. But I actually, you know, I managed to combine both. I was like, I'm just going to actually, I can't, why am I going to make this, treat this as torturous? I'm going to actually just get on with And as you say, the stigma isn't felt by everyone else in that year and the new people you're encountering. They're just all being nice, lovely people. My friends for life are from that year, not the previous year. Even though I knew people in that previous year, the ones I still talk to regularly, someone I will be talking with today, are people that I met in that last year, I had to, that extra year I had to do. So I, I'm grateful now when I look back in that sense. It's just weird how life works. We've spoken about it already, Joe, but 
in April 2018, your grandma sadly passed away. What are your favourite memories of your grand growing up and as an adult? Was her death something that was more natural and perhaps slightly easier to process than the grief event we'll discuss very shortly, which was your best mate? Yeah, compared to the two, yes. But so with my grandma, my positive memories of her are like... I spent a lot of, obviously spent a lot of time with her, but I guess the one, the example that shines out always is that, so I'm a Crystal Palace fan, probably because of her. So my gram worked at Palace for like 25 years. So that meant I was always getting donned in kits, going on the half-term football community things. It meant at some point when she was working at hospitality at the executive boxes, I'd sit in like an empty box at Palace on my own sometimes, just like, just, oh yeah, leave that kid over there and just leave him to it, like, Palace was my playground thanks to her like for a little bit I'd go see I could go to the training ground I could do all these things and my dad often worked on the weekend back then so it was my nan that was like my into football and of match they're going experience and that never stopped in the end so she eventually retired she stopped working at Palace for a bit and then she eventually retired and then for the last I say four or five years maybe longer of her life certainly while she was still able to go I I go to Palace with my dad and my little cousin and my nan was the seat behind me. So she's always part of that thing with me and my experience with Palace. And it meant I saw her all the time as well, which was great. But yeah, she got very ill, but it was meant to be an illness that was like avoided or something that she'd get over. And then she just kind of caught infections and then all these other things. And it just kind of suddenly there's this rapid decline and it kind of caught me for six. Yeah, I was gutted about it. But as I said, because I was overworking, I didn't really process it properly. I remember actually weirdly like October, so she actually passed in March or April of 2018. I didn't really properly mourn her till about October, November. I went on like a stag do and got really pissed up. Like a song came on that I knew she liked and I just kind of had to take myself away for a situation. I was very battered, by the way, like that didn't help. But yeah, it was the first time I was like, shit, man, I need to actually make some time to grieve for people, not just her. We often say a lot on this pod, Joe, and I speak to guests about grief so much that Grief in a lot of ways is more stigmatised than mental health. Is that a perspective you'd share? And if so, why? I could see it. I think being a man in that situation, quote unquote, you have to, sometimes your instinct of reaction is to kind of go, right, be stoic and strong for other people here, you know. Let them have their moments to be emotional and, and get upset and, you know, just be there for them and keep all that in. And that was kind of, I guess, maybe how I was trying to manifest it at the time, particularly when... I don't know if you've had to, I'm fortunate enough to experience it where seeing like your dad get upset, that normally is enough to set off waterworks for me anyway. But also I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to help my dad through his grieving process here. So, you know, I'm trying to be unselfish, but obviously that you still have to find a way to grieve for yourself further down the line. And what your idea of is properly grieving, that's different for everybody. So trying to fit a blanket around how everyone deals with it, it's just a bad idea. We're going to come to the very difficult part of the pod now, mate, because not only were you having to grieve for your gran, you also had to grieve for your best mate because in August 2018, he took his own life. Before we get to the events surrounding his passing, just tell me how you two met, how your friendship blossomed when you were young and as you got older. I met Dan at secondary school. Obviously, I said I didn't really know anyone there, but I remember just getting on with him somewhat relatively early. He didn't live too far from me at the time. We were in a few classes, a lot of classes together. Oh yeah, he just got on. And through like everything, he was the glue between a lot of people. And you don't realise it until we left school, especially since his passing, that he was often the person that's like, let's go and do something tonight. What's happening? Oh, 
let's go to this club night or whatever. And he would be linking, let's say, me to other people, his cousins, all these different groups. That all got on well with each other in that environment. But actually, once he was removed, you don't actually, we wouldn't actually link up separately. He was, yeah, he was always the energy, the heart and soul. There was a point where he was like, he'd be the liveliest, brightest guy at a party and he wasn't drinking. There was a time like that. And so he was, that was just the example of him as this high energy guy. And yeah, like, so that was just someone I always got on with, particularly someone like myself that I can, I'm even to this day, I'm quite bad at checking in on people or just like having, if my friends message me, I will then spend the rest of the day going back and forth and messages with them. But sometimes I don't always be the one that instigates it. So, so someone, someone like that in my life that is always chatting to me all the time, every day. Yeah, great. And we had a lot in common. So yeah, he's someone I've always had positive memories of because we just had so many, like so many nights out and stuff. Weirdly, it meant that when he passed for a little bit, we used to go to a lot of garage nights together and there was a weird pocket of time where I couldn't even listen to garage, which I was terrified of because I thought that this, I can't have that anymore. But I'm almost there at that point where, you know, it's a lot more fond uh, memories and experiences with him when I hear that. Let's talk about the build-up to his passing now because I understand he didn't exhibit any big red flags before it happened and very much fitted that stereotypical uh, British male archetype of not asking for help or go to the doctors for anything, even on one occasion when he had a severe urine infection. Is that right? Yeah, there was no signs in terms of him talking about it to other people. There was no hint that like something was going on. His mother found like a rope in his room prior to this happening and he'd kind of explained it away as oh, I've bought this I'm going to make my niece a swing in the garden or something something like as throwaway and off key that you had no reason to disbelieve it but other than that even though he'd planned it and he'd written all these letters where he'd been wanting it to happen for a long time there was no hint to anyone that that was the case and I would have had that kind of conversation with him but yeah he was just somebody that this is how I see it. He wasn't someone that would go to the doctor about that stuff. If he didn't feel comfortable with friends, I didn't, I didn't get the impression he was comfortable going to the doctor either. And that, as you mentioned, so he had like a urine infection or kidney infection or something. Rather than just deal with it, it meant he was going to the toilet all the time. And rather than just deal with it and actually get it fixed, he was like, ah, you know, I'll just wear the fact that I go to the toilet a lot. By the time he eventually dealt with it, which is like a year, 18 months later, the infection had kind of reached certain areas of his body where that stuff was now permanent. He was going to take medicine for however long and it would help get rid of some of the infection. But ultimately, like some permanent damage meant he was always going to need to go to the toilet once every blooming hour. And I always saw it when I look back now. I was like, well, if he was that difficult to get to the doctor for something physically obviously wrong like that, I just can't see when I look back now and try to think, oh, what could we have done? I don't know what could have got him to go to self-refer or talk to a, a doctor or practitioner about thoughts in his head, invasive thoughts in or the suicidal thoughts. Do you know what I mean? Maybe that's me just trying to comfort myself, but I can just imagine that applying to a lot of other people as well. Can you tell me about the day you found out he passed? You know, where were you when you found out and how did you feel in that moment? And then obviously the grieving process in the days and weeks that followed. I found out while I was at work. So I was at Apple broadcasting. The job that I did there, I would record an hour at like 10 to 11 a.m. And then I'd have a two hour gap and then do one till 2 p.m. I had a text during the morning one, the 10 to 11, and it just, a mate, a mutual friend of ours, we went to school together, but I'd only see this guy through Daniel. And it was like, um, ring me ASAP. 
and I took it to mean you know I, I didn't I didn't actually I actually remember I didn't rush to it because I thought this is going to be about something else you know a, a work opportunity or something I'll get to it anyway I do that radio and then I go out something to eat and then I ring him and he tells me yeah Daniel's dead and I'm waiting for some sort of like and weirdly, I remember I said I said like such a nonsensical response to it. It was like, um, "Oh no, that can't be true. We've got tickets to see Fifty Cent in in a couple of months." That's, that's what are you talking about? Almost like my brain went into this weird mode that it never dealt with before, being like, "Oh no, he, why would he do that? Like, that's not what do you mean?" Like, and um, yeah, like Dan Tung himself, and it's like I remember I just went into a. I remember sort of bolting out of the front door to try and get some air and just kind of have a conversation away from other people. It was a short conversation, I remember, because obviously he's probably having to share this news to a lot of people. He was like, can you inform other people? I was like, yeah, no problem. I just remember hanging up that phone, getting into a toilet, locking myself and just going into shock, basically. And um, then having to, I guess, just trying to get myself out of that thinking about it. I remember having to ring, I rang someone else then to tell them that experience of someone he fell to his knees at work and is like falling to bits on the phone and that was a horrible probably the most horrible conversation I've ever had and then I think fuck I've now got another hour of radio in about half hour 40 minutes like um I would have had every right to have gone look this has happened I need to get the fuck out of here and go home and I think they were kind of like please do that but they also had no one to do that hour. So what I just, this is this again, me always trying to think about other people not making a fuss. I did another hour of radio with that all going on. And I remember I just, I was being very, I was, yeah, I was not present. I was doing the stuff and all that, but it was very, it was not great. And, um, and then, as we mentioned before, I would go to work. I would go to Rewind after doing all that stuff there. So I went to Rewind and sat there and went, so this has happened. And they were like, why are you here then? And then, because th there was stuff I needed to be getting on with. And I just, I could do a couple of hours. And I just said, no, actually, I do need to go home. I can't do this. And um, yeah, that was just a very, a very surreal day. One I don't plan and hope on living again. After his death, you had what would come to be a mini epiphany about your own mental health and you had a newfound desire to sort it out in your words did you manage to do that no I didn't because of as I mentioned I think I, I, I might have touched on earlier I don't know if it makes it but I thought I'm living life too fast if I just give myself more rest time and I do some one less thing let me take one less thing out of what I do every day and that was the magazine work at Rewind I said let me just finish that and I'll have more room to breathe and relax and just recover from the working week and just general life. And yeah, that does it. It's not as simple as that. You need to do more than that. And um, yeah, I was suddenly a lot more aware of stuff I could be, you know, maybe I'm dealing with some depression here or maybe there's some other stuff going on here too. And maybe it's a, it's a human fault, not just of my own, but the idea of like, well, this isn't crippling me. So until it's a problem like that, then maybe I don't have to, you know, a stitch in time saves nine is the phrase. If you nip the bud early, it saves you a lot of the horrible stuff that can come if you leave it unattended and it will be a lot worse and a lot harder to come back from. And so, yeah, 2019, me being on another planet is me not dealing with that stuff. It's me just thinking time will be a healer for all. It's not as simple as that. And then comes in 
the pandemic of 2020 where yeah suddenly all the anxieties and problems that a lot of people experiencing in the last year off the back of this stuff is being added to that pre-existing stuff so let's say my level of tolerance and coping might have already been on the brink all this stuff comes in and suddenly I induce huge anxieties and really low moods and just I'm a very different yeah I'm in a lot of trouble to and I have now since self-referred and stuff but like a year 18 months too late if Dan was listening to this pod mate what do you think you'd say to him and what do you think he'd say to you I don't know I think he'd be gutted so. I didn't expect to um I didn't expect to break, sorry. Take time. Yeah, I just fix up my voice for a bit and then um I'll give it a go I think he'd be gutted to be honest because I think he obviously saw his death and taking himself out of his own head as something as like dealing with his problem and um, you know he was really keen to emphasise that like you know I want everyone to celebrate at my funeral I want um I think he wanted us to see him helping himself and um, I don't think he would have not done it if he'd have seen how some of us have struggled to cope or whatever but I think he might have felt comfortable I think he would have told himself that we might have dealt with it a bit better and I think he'd be not guy not not with himself I think he'd be a bit disappointed in seeing this and seeing how that he out of last year or so panned out I wouldn't know what to say to him actually I haven't really got an answer for that I want to move on to COVID-19 and the impact it's had we've, we've discussed a little bit already but August September 2020 was when your mental health began to slip in a very bad way mate the short-term coping mechanisms you were utilizing held some degree of positivity for you but they weren't helping you long term were they tell me about how you felt during this period so severe anxiety symptoms of that and low mood that came from or certainly amplified by lockdown being imposed a lot of the radio stuff was being done remotely doing that at home was very difficult at my parents house particularly with the apple stuff represent from home is fine you know it's a lot more cavalier it's community radio if your mum walks into the room with your dinner it's actually part of the charm like it's fine with apple it was a lot more like this needs to be clean silent as best as you can wrap a duvet over your head create some sort of fort that like drops out any sound that was a very stressful experience in my house my family's quite a loud one and there's a lot of people in the family that, uh, you know, there's three or four of us in the house. And also my room at the time, the windows were really thin, like poorly installed when we moved in. So you can hear everything outside. You can hear trains going by, 
100 meters away you can all this kind of like outside noise that i'd have to stop every time i was trying to record and a lot of what i was recording was to deadline so you know please send it over by noon you know stuff that could take should take 20 minutes was taking 40 minutes 45 minutes hour because i was just trying to wait for any gap of silence to try and sneak a recording in of like a 30 second link or something and what ended up happening was just that that would lead to a very very stressful unnatural broadcasting very tense i wasn't dealing with that very well and i probably wasn't sounding very good as a result so in my mind i was like okay i find this very stressful and it's creating a lot of conflict with my own family as well because i was just like getting really angry that they didn't seem to get it sometimes and then um so i was like right i'll try and move out and then in the process of moving out to find a place where i could just get on with it and do it silently i get taken off that bit of work i, I no longer do it and that ultimately was that was like 80 90 percent of my income so I suddenly had this huge panic of like, right, I've just been, I've just got a mortgage sorted for this flat and I now have a tiny bit of savings, but I actually need to find some work urgently. And so that just carried, I had just this huge anxiety all throughout the, for that, let's say most of 2020, basically, most of those lockdowns, just worrying what became professional anxiety, I guess, or just, just conflict with family. And I don't want to butt heads with my own family. I love them. So it then grew into financial anxiety and stuff like that. And it just became, I, it wasn't functional. You know, as I said earlier, I was, there's stuff that you think, oh, I can manage this short-term coping mechanisms. But by like September, October, I was like, nah, this this is no more. So I self-referred. Luckily with my local authority, didn't have to wait too long, maybe a month or two. And uh, yeah, started getting into some uh, CBT. When it comes to the CBT, whilst it did give you good coping mechanisms, mate, it didn't solve your financial problems. And the phrase you said to me was, well, none of this solves me not getting paid. Was that difficult for you? And how are you right now when it comes to that financial anxiety? I mean, it's a very cynical way of looking at it, but that's sometimes when I was really tough, because a lot of CBT, certainly the one I'm having is, it's like studying, it's like homework and application of theories and and stuff like that, which I fully trust in and believe in because they, they, they exist for a reason. But like, there'd be some stuff I'm trying to work on thought patterns and why I thought this and actually what the reality is, what I can control. And I am still going cool so I can feel better in the moment. But my mortgage payment is in two weeks. Like, so what? Like, the stress comes back. Yeah, I felt there was a, there has been a cap on what can be achieved while I'm not grabbing other stuff. It's eased somewhat. Sometimes it still comes back. Like, I have little pockets of work. I started a new job very recently. But that's already felt like way more time and hours than it's worth in terms of the money. So that's something I may have to long off again already. It's still very tense right now. I'm kind of just any old odds and sods just trying to have my bills covered. Never mind actually like livable wage. I'm just trying to get the big bills covered and eating food from savings basically. As a final question on this topic before we move on, if you could go back and talk to that 14-year-old, 13-year-old, Mowgli Joe, as you describe it. What do you think you'd say to him, knowing what you do now? I don't know, actually, because I think at that age, I would have expected a very different career path. I would have expected... I was like a maths kid at that age, so I was just thinking, like, you know, I'll go and do the world's my oyster. I'll go and do a really smart job and do all that stuff. And I ended up doing something completely different. And so I guess I'd say to him... Never say never, expect a lot of surprises, believe in yourself a bit more because great things happen when that does. 
And yeah, just... And this is something I'd actually say to everyone at school age, I think, is stop worrying about what other people think. It must happen to absolutely everybody. But I don't know about your school experience, Freddie. There'll be kids in like... Even in like year eight or year nine, and you're like... When you look back, you go, oh, that kid didn't give a fuck because he wasn't cool by the status quo or whatever. But he already had this base level of like, I don't care what you think. And they were free that whole time. Whereas I think like being in school, trying to survive, trying to keep, yeah, get right and find your social groups and stuff. You know, you care a lot about what other people think. You care a lot about what girls think. You care a lot about like what the guys that play football, who the guys that fight with. You're trying to keep everybody happy. Certainly I was. I fancied myself this social chameleon because I was like, you know, I, just, I want to be on everyone's good side. But ultimately, who gives a shit if you're not? Do you know what I mean? And I think you can waste so much time trying to be everybody's friend and particularly in the music industry as well everyone wants to be everyone's friend but ultimately it's just like why and some of my best work in music and certainly as an interviewer is that I stopped I took a decision to stop being friends with artists because you can get too close and I actually I like having a degree of separation at least where I can ask a difficult question without them feeling like oh I thought we were boys which has happened so yeah stop worrying so much about other people think just do what makes you happy We have come to our final topic of conversation, Joe, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter and chat about our mental health. And it's a bit of quick fire. It's a bit deeper stuff. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? I'd say it's a solid four or five out of 10, just because I feel like you remember what it's like to feel better and good. And so all the time I'm not that, I, I don't know, maybe I'm scoring it harshly, but I feel like I'm aiming for that silly standard of like, you know, what it was like three or four years ago. So until that's solved, I think a lot of what I've worked on is the things that make me feel better or more comfortable, whether it is like my money to put together or career aspirations and goals and stuff. Actually, I think a lot of the work that I'm doing at the moment is as much as I do need that stuff sorted, is actually you have to make sure your happiness isn't defined by that. So I'm trying to rewire essentially as I keep saying that's my thing rewire my brain to kind of like focus on the other things that make you happy or make it so other it is other things that make you happy and define your just kind of what makes you content what you're grateful for and stuff so that all the ups and downs that come with other stuff isn't just going to plague you what age do you think you were mate when you first became self-aware and realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health um about two or three years ago i can't i couldn't pinpoint the exact date maybe it was 2018 maybe it was 2019 i'm not sure it was when funnily enough danny rose who is i think still at tottenham a footballer he spoke about depression and obviously there's so many ways that manifests and it can mean different things and i think people see forget stigmas and stuff but they also go like oh that's not what i'm thinking therefore i must not have that it's clinical there's all kinds of things anyway there was something danny rose said about the way he spoke to his close people around him changed and he was starting to be really bitey with his family and it just sent a bit of a chill down my spine and i was like okay i know exactly what that is because i've that's exactly what i am i don't i've started talking to my parents a lot that indoors a lot in the last couple of years or whatever time i've noticed i speak to them like that now they're almost like tiptoe around me or weirdly make small talk, which would then again ignore me because I'm like, why, why are we small talking? Like we know each other. We should be comfortable silent in each other's company. Do you know what I mean? But when I reflect, I know that I'd taken myself, you know, I wasn't seeing them as often. I was locking myself away. I was off doing work. So 
when I get home and exhausted and was like, I don't want to talk or, you know, I'm not happy with something that's going on and they're coming and wanting to chat and trying to understand it or I didn't want to talk about it. So it was then I thought, oh, actually, okay, I should be scared by that. I should be scared by that example of like that he cited as like, that was what made him go and sort it out and go and get changed. But again, this is why I kicked myself. I still didn't. I still didn't. I saw that and was like, okay, there's the one signs and I still didn't address it. So I just say people, man, just... Don't wait till a bottom barrel. Just go and sort it out. Can you tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health, mate? Who was it with? What impact did it have? And how do you look back on it? Did it feel like something quite big and that a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or did it feel like something quite insignificant and normalised? I don't know. But I think because I'd internalised a lot of mental health discourse and stuff, because of the nature of what I do for a living and of who I follow on social media and stuff. I follow quite a lot of interesting people and people with ideas and people are open about talking about all sorts of stuff. And, you know, maybe not necessarily in sport or something, but like general, like liberal, creative, the arts, like mental health, it's quite a big topic now in the last few years. And so I've seen a lot of that discourse. I didn't necessarily feel it always applied to me, certainly when I was younger, but I saw it and I understood it. And I, I so the idea of like stigma wasn't necessarily for me. And again, I've recognized some symptoms in it that meant, I guess I'm probably probably dealing with that. And I don't know what a diagnosis, what difference it would have made for me other than like, actually, let's just call, let's just get on with it. I do remember when I self-referred and I did like a telephone interview and stuff, obviously being remote at the moment, getting the doctor's letter or something, you get a copy that they send off to let you know you're starting and they're just like, you know, exhibiting signs of low mood and severe anxiety. And I was like, okay, seeing it on paper like that, I was like, there it is, my fears or feelings, my opinion on it confirmed. You don't want to self-diagnose, you, you know, if you go online and Google stuff, everything ends with call 999, you're about to drop dead. So there's maybe a part of me that was like, maybe you're just assuming that that's the case and you're just actually just being a miserable git at the moment, like deal with that. But actually seeing it laid down on, on paper like that, I was like, okay, cool, maybe, uh, all right. So I know then at least, it, it just meant it was a reason to get on with it. I didn't have a massive weight on my shoulders. It was like, cool i had this feeling it was something like this it's interesting that it's nice to have it confirmed nice is probably the wrong word but it's been confirmed by someone that knows what they're talking about so okay cool and outside of finances what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health so it could be things people might say to you it could be a sound a sensation maybe a social environment what can you tell me here or have you not figured all of them out yet i don't think i figured them all out yet but i feel like it's definitely too sensitive around career chat i guess for all the things that we all know already, which is like, you know, you only see highlights on social media and stuff, but I was part of a very talented peer group at Represent. So everyone is going on to amazing things and I've done amazing things too. But when a moment where suddenly it's not going well for a little bit, you're suddenly, and particularly being remote and you're, you're, you're alone with your thoughts and you're suddenly spiraling about like, oh, okay, well, well how do I get out of this now? Like, how, how do I get back in the conversation of, do, am I still, am I going to be a presenter now? Is that what's happening? Am I, you know... Do I need to find a different kind of job elsewhere? I haven't got experience in whatever I'm applying for. I haven't got experience in because I'm doing something new. So how am I going to get applying for jobs? And if I allow myself to, I can really just spiral down that plug hole where you just start panicking and worrying and, and getting really anxious and itchy. So sometimes, particularly when people who are in that world ask me how I'm getting on in that stuff, I can feel myself kind of tensing up immediately and being like, oh, I don't really want to talk about this. I'm not really comfortable talking about this. So... Those are my kind of triggers at the moment because I can, I can unload of just worry and resentment. And I don't want to be that to people who are 
my friends yes they're my friends through the industry and stuff but they are some of them i are my good friends so i don't yeah it's not something i'm comfortable talking about with them so yeah that can the spiral is how i put it i just i feel like we all have a little negative thought here and there but to, it's to just nip it in the bud there and then rather than let it spiral just this grim circle and what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better, Joe? Which ones have you found that have worked for you? And maybe which ones that you've tried and gave a go but haven't? I can answer that, actually. It opens the big pad by the desk. There's been certain like exercises that I have found useful when explained to me, but I haven't always had the opportunity to do them. So there's stuff like... Uh, the cycle of like triggers, what leads to thoughts and worries, the physical symptoms that come, the behaviors, the emotions and mood. There's a name for it, but it's like a cycle basically. And basically the idea is that if you fill that out and you see what leads to what, you see the chain reaction of say a spiral and then you can, all right, if I just change one of those things, if I remove that bit there, it breaks the whole cycle and then you don't, it stops happening. That stuff I found pretty useful. Other times there's been stuff as well, which is just like, unhelpful thoughts and images that you you note them down when you felt a particular way and you do like a court so you provide facts that support the unhelpful thought then facts that are evidence against that unhelpful negative thought and then you offer like a more alternate balanced realistic perspective and then you kind of rate the outcome between that and be like okay so moving your head out of the situation what is the actual truth likely truth of what you're thinking the negative thoughts about unhelpful thoughts that you're thinking right now and that I found in theory really good. I've I've struggled to, in practice because I think when I have those thoughts, my immediate thing isn't to go and write that process out and go through all that. Sometimes it might happen and I don't have an opportunity to do that for a few hours and that few hours has passed and I don't feel that quite tense and upset as I did before. So being able to actually deal with that stuff there and then, I'm not always, I'm a little bit behind on that in terms of actually getting some of that do it. I've got the theories all there and it seems sound, but actually like, all right, let's apply it and let's, let's start working on it. I'm not always able to do that. And as a final question, Joe, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to do it? I think, I'm not sure how much more can be said. I think as long as there's, I think there's been a big increase in people saying, you know, coming to you as a friend, you know, you can open up to me about stuff like that, which has its positives, but also, you know, doesn't solve everything. I think particularly someone who is a bit more, even like people, friends and family have reached out to me and they're like, there's stuff I don't really want to talk about with them. So sometimes I'm like, I want to talk to a professional and I, I, there's someone else I know who actually, um, who's got other more sort of mental health issues a bit deeper than something, well, I say something simple, something like depression or anxiety, which people kind of have a loose understanding, a base understanding of what that might mean and what it look like. But if you're dealing with something like bipolar disorder or um, a, a schizophrenia or something like that, I've heard stories about how people, you know, the friends have wanted to reach out and they've tried to be helpful on the thing. But if they don't get something that amounts to like a positive feedback or response from that person they're trying to help in the first one or two goes they kind of just go oh, all right, and then just give up on it and so that person in that instance who, who suffers from those things has just found it easier to just not look to their friends and family for that stuff they appreciate that people want to be supportive and help out but actually the reality of it is that you're not equipped to deal with what that means so I think there's a general base comfort of like 
don't be afraid to talk to each other about stuff like that hopefully that's happening in older generations too i don't know how much but i think the key is more professionals for these people to talk to or an outlet where they can check in really easy self-refer i was surprised at how easy it is to self-refer someone told me i was quite struck about how much you can just do it yourself and i think that that path was enough to stop me doing it probably that whole year and a half before was that that like oh, i don't think i'm going to phone up and book an appointment with someone or but the idea that i could check in online and say I think I'm feeling this way and then someone come back to you and you work it out from there. That actually was what finally got me into that process way after the fact I should have done. And I imagine there's a lot of people in that position like, like me who are, we'll see if anyone knows, but I think there's a lot of people in my position like that who are probably just that one step away. There's only so much you can do out of here sometimes, but like whatever can be helped to make that step easier of being like, if you think someone's right, just call this number or send this email or fill in this contact form on a website. And we'll try and get back to you. I know the resources are scarce. It's quite difficult right now, especially now more people need it than ever, that support. I like the conversations that have been happening, broadly speaking, over the last couple of years. It's just then being able to provide the resources so that those people that want to actually act up on it are able to get the help. Joe Walker, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on the Just Checking In podcast. Uh, thank you for having me, man. I appreciate the invite and... Um, Good to speak about this stuff. One, a couple of them, I, even though I knew some of it was coming, I, I still surprised myself a little bit. But yeah, it is what it is. Thanks for having me on. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a massive thank you to Joe for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for letting me check in with him. I'll put some links to where you can follow Joe on social media, find out more about international clearance and all the amazing radio work he does in the show notes. Remember, guys, if you've liked what you've heard, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. Give it a share on social media. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and give us a review. It really helps us with the algorithms. Or if you like what we're doing here at Vent, please consider supporting our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. Hold up. 